This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Good evening, everybody, or good morning or good afternoon, depending on where you are joining us from. My name is Tamara Wood. I'm a visiting fellow at the Andrew and Renata Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at the University of New South Wales. And it's my very great pleasure to welcome you to this second session of the Caldor Centre's annual conference. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we all join the meeting today. For me, that's the Muanina people in Tasmania, and I'd like to pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people joining us today. Well, the title of this panel is Moving Beyond Climate Refugees, Readying Law, Policy and Practice for Displacement in a Warming World. Now, as most of you will know, disasters and climate change are already impacting on human mobility worldwide. We heard in the opening panel of the conference this morning that just last year alone, according to the Internal Displacement Monitoring Centre, more than 30 million people were newly displaced by disasters and climate change, more than three times the number displaced by conflict and violence. This panel asks the question, when people are on the move from the impacts of disasters and climate change, how does law help them or hinder them? How do existing legal frameworks, including refugee law, human rights law, migration and free movement of persons arrangements, address the needs of those who move? And what more might be needed in the future? Of course, there are no simple answers to these questions. Um, and in fact, the answers will frequently depend or differ over time and across places. Because while the challenges of climate change in one sense are universal, in another sense, they depend very much on where in the world you find yourself. In Africa, for example, changing rainfall patterns and slow onset disasters such as drought are leading farmers and nomadic pastoralists to move from traditional lands to new places in search of food security and more sustainable livelihoods. In Latin America, extreme weather events such as storm, storm surges, typhoons and cyclones force many thousands of people to flee each year, both within their own countries and further afield. Closer to home in Australia, in the Pacific, Rising sea levels are increasing population pressures on small island states, impacting water supply and the ability to grow food. In addition to this, when these sorts of impacts compel people to move, the types of legal avenues that are available to them to find safety and longer term solutions also differ between different places. In some regions, the government use of discretionary-based humanitarian visas are widely used to protect people, particularly fleeing sudden onset impacts such as storms and to provide temporary stay in another country until it's safe to return. In other regions, expanded refugee protection frameworks may protect some people who move as a result of disasters and climate change. There are some countries that have developed seasonal or ongoing uh, labour migration frameworks 
to provide pathways for those affected by climate change to move and to assist them to support those populations who stay at home. And yet other countries have entered into broader multilateral agreements for the free movement of persons between states, which although not directed towards climate change and disaster related human mobility, might nevertheless provide opportunities for legal access to territory and protection for those who are impacted. So to tell us uh, more about these many and very varied law, laws, policies and practices that exist around the world and the opportunities that they present for addressing disaster and climate change related human mobility, as well as of course the many challenges and gaps that still remain, I'm really delighted to welcome our four very distinguished panellists to the session today. First, Bruce Burson is the manager of the Refugee and Protection Stream at the New Zealand Immigration and Protection Tribunal, where he has written many of the tribunal's leading decisions, including in relation to protection, disasters and climate change. Bruce is also a senior research associate at the Refugee Law Initiative at the University of London, as well as an international legal consultant specialising in human mobility in the context of disasters and climate change. Lucy Duxbacher, uh, who will join us shortly, um, is a diplomat and migration governance expert uh, from the International Gov Intergovernmental sorry, Authority on Development, IGAD, in Eastern Africa. Lucy spearheaded the IGAD region's recent adoption in 2020 of a new free movement protocol, which includes the world's first free movement provisions, ensuring access to free movement arrangements for disaster and climate change affected communities. Walter Kalin is a preeminent expert in disasters, climate change and human mobility, who has held a number of high level advisory positions with the UN and elsewhere, including his current role as envoy of the chair of the Platform on Disaster Displacement or PDD. Uh, PDD is a state led initiative led by France and Fiji working towards better protection for disaster and climate change displaced people. And finally, uh, Caroline Ziegraf is the Deputy Director of the Hugo Observatory, the world's first scientific research centre dedicated to issues of environmental migration. Caroline is an expert in climate change and migration with special expertise on issues of immobility in the context of disasters and climate change. For tonight's panel, We'll have approximately 40 minutes um, of Q&A with our distinguished panellists before we then have some time for your questions. Um, so please, at any time during the discussion, you're very welcome to post your questions using the Q&A function um, at the bottom of your screen. So with that, uh, let me begin. And Bruce, I'm going to begin with you um, because you're very experienced in um, the operation of refugee and human rights law to give protection in practice. The title of this panel is Moving Beyond Climate Refugees. So what do we mean by climate refugees and why do we need to move beyond um, this term? And based on your experience, what do you see as the role of refugee law and human rights law in protecting people who are displaced in this context? Thanks. Um, thanks Tamara and thanks for having me on such a great panel. Um, look, when I think we're talking about uh, climate refugees, I think it has two meanings in the world. One is like a general 
social societal meaning and it's simply a general term to describe anybody who's compelled or forced to leave home or move because of some because of the impacts of climate change and i sort of that's okay to me it sort of sensitizes people to the issue that people are forced to leave home to save their lives uh, because of climate change but it's also misleading in a in a real way in that Legally, the definition um, of a refugee is far more narrow, narrower in scope, and it centres on the universal uh, refugee definition in the 51 Convention or in regional instruments in Africa or declarations in uh, South America. And although there's a number of legal and factual complexities, two are sort of paramount in driving this narrowness, in my view. One is, you know, certainly at the universal definition, you need to establish a state of being persecuted. And the reality is that simply being exposed to a climate hazard doesn't, without more, make you being persecuted. And in the regional um, context, there's some work getting done about in what context, and as you alluded to, Tamara, um, climate hazards may constitute events seriously disturbing public order, but it's very much a work in progress. I think we're at the beginning of exploring the boundaries of those of those um, um, instruments. The other thing, and this is, I think, key to um, the key issue, is that the refugee definition only really um, bites or comes into play once someone crosses an international border. So you need to be alienated from your country of nationality or outside it to even get into the refugee protection regime. And this sort of drives why I think in a real sense, we need to move beyond these debates about what is a climate refugee, because most of the people who are displaced or, or compelled to move in the context of disasters, climate change stay within the national borders and only a small subset um, cross an international border. You think about the Pacific, getting from A to B to cross an international border is a big ask. We, we don't typically have land borders, so it's, it's a very difficult thing to do. So I think in a real, real sense, we need to move beyond the debate to capture the, the reality of, of, of what forced movement looks like. I think also, you know, moving beyond this debate, I think there's a lot of academic ink is, is spilt about the precise boundary of who is a, a climate refugee. And in my view, we need to focus less about um, academic debates, although we need some academic rigor, of course, and more focusing on needs and meeting needs by best, best practice. But none of this is to say there's no role for refugee law, far from it. You know, I'm going to be the last one to say there's no role for it to play. Um, there are going to be people around the world who I think would meet the definition um, and going forward may very well meet the definition in its scale. Um, these could be um, a significant number of people. There's issues around how they access asylum systems, of course. But I mean, the Refugee Convention has a clear role to play, but I think we need sort of efficient ways of, of determining who is and who isn't without it. And perhaps, you know, moving towards group-based uh, means to do that rather than individuated assessments. As for human rights law, it's got a huge, huge role to play. Refugee law is anchored in international human rights law at one level. And a lot of the work that we've been doing in New Zealand has been trying to see how core human rights norms and concepts like the right to life or the right to be out, not arbitrarily deprived of life or the right to be free from inhuman or degrading treatment, how these can resonate and operate within the context of disasters and uh, climate change. And some of that thinking has been picked up by the Human Rights Committee in a decision uh, that issued in January um, last year, saying, look, you know, climate change isn't a human rights-free zone. Protection law can apply. 
And while it wasn't successful in the facts, I mean, states were told very clearly to keep their eyes open. And the final point I want to emphasize about international human rights law is that it's got a super important role to play at the domestic level in terms of providing a legal basis. And some of the work I've done with Walter and Jane uh, and another colleague in this space is trying to look at you know, the right to life and how this can form the basis of a duty to move people out of harm's way, to evacuate them, to maybe relocate them if things are that bad for the community. It also provides a legal basis around which states can begin to undertake uh, non-discriminatory disaster risk reduction activities or begin to think about people who choose not to move or who decide not to move or who are unable to move. So law provides a very, very uh, stable and predictable platform for those sorts of, sorts of activities which are fundamental. So yes, human rights law, massive role to play. I think that's my four minutes, so back to you. Thanks so much, Bruce. Lucy, if I may turn to you, Bruce has given us a, a great picture of some of the complexities um, and some of the problems with trying to get a sort of one-size-fits-all approach to addressing displacement in the context of disasters and climate change. Could you tell us a bit more about what this actually looks like on the ground? So from your work with communities impacted by disasters and climate change in East Africa, what are the specific needs or challenges that arise when people move in this context? Over to you. Uh, very good morning. Uh, greetings from the Red Sea city of Djibouti and from IGAD Secretariat. And it's such a pleasure to see, uh, to see you, Dr. Tamara, and uh, the team. Actually, we are very happy that we are part of this process on disaster displacement uh, in a warming world. Um, if you may recall, the reason IGAD exists actually since 1986 is to address the issues of disasters. And on the ground, what we have seen from the 1980s is recurrent um, natural disasters. We are faced with the situation of floods. Almost all our countries experience floods. We have landslides on the slopes of mountain ranges like Renzori's, the Elgon Ranges. Every three years, we've witnessed cyclones and as well as an attack on our food security situation from locusts, the desert locusts, which you have seen now in uh, last year in 2020 was a big challenge for the region as well as drought. And uh, the most significant drought actually started from the 1980s uh, when uh, Somalia, Kenya, um, the region, Ethiopia, had a very prolonged uh, drought. Even currently, we have a state of emergency with the arid and semi-arid lands um, in the Republic of Kenya. Now, um, approximately a population of 3 million persons have been displaced by natural disasters in 2020 alone in our region. Now, the details on the analysis, the recommendations of this uh, state of play with regard to natural disaster occurrences can be found at our website of the IGAD Center for Climate Prediction and on um, ICPAC. I think we're all uh, knowledgeable about ICPAC the IGAD Climate Prediction and Adaptation Center uh, based in Nairobi. Now, 
On the ground, our member states have tried to respond. First of all, they are part of the global legal frameworks. We have the Nansen Initiative Protection Agenda, the GCM, the Global Compact on Migration, also the Global Compact on Refugees, the Sendai Framework on Disaster Risk Reduction. Now, the status of implementation of this international framework is that it's ongoing by member states at varying degrees of implementation. And then, of course, we have a very good foundation document of the African, um, of the African Union, that was AU Refugee Convention, because it was um, signed at the time of the OAU, before African Union became African Union. Now, at national level, we have national IDP policies, disaster risk reduction plans, climate change policies, all across our member states. The institutions that are custodians of these policies or the legislative frameworks do exist in all our member states. Now, the challenge is with regard to actual implementation of the policy frameworks that we have committed ourselves to. Now, the needs and challenges, in brief, we need to amend our legal and policy frameworks progressively in consideration of the progressively adverse effects of climate change and the displacement created by natural disasters. And existing policies, even on refugees, need an IDPs and so on, need to adopt, adapt to the existence of persons displaced by natural disasters. And also, in terms of prevention and preparedness, we need to update the member state capacities with up-to-date information. And this we're attempting with the ICPAC information, which is really high-tech uh, information and analysis from our experts in ICPAC, but also the application of technology to manage this situation, the early warning systems and early action. Now, in EGAD region, we have been implementing short-term programs. Now, a situation of climate change and natural disasters, which is recurrent and ongoing in the region, requires us to collaborate consistently. And therefore, we have just actually um, had the 72nd session of the IGAD Council of Ministers of Foreign Affairs adopt the IGAD Protocol on Free Movement of Persons uh, in IGAD region which has a specific article responding to persons displaced by natural disasters. Uh, distinguished delegates, also there is need to enhance the resilience capacity of our communities. That means governments have to identify these communities through zoning, but also to support communities to have SOPs, also to do interventions in restoring natural ecosystems. We require expertise, knowledge, and skills at the institutional level, but also I must add at the member state, I, uh, at the secretariat level of IGAD in Djibouti, we need more capacity. Even at ICPAC in Nairobi, we need more capacity for trend analysis, early warning, but also technology so that our member states can respond on timely information. And um, we have one significant target, that is to get our member states, treasuries of ministries of, uh, ministries of finance to actually um, significantly increase financing to responding to the effects or the impacts of natural disasters in the region. 
for this. Um, uh, I thank you, Tamara. Lucy, thank you so much for that incredibly rich and comprehensive um, overview. I wonder if I might ask you to expand just in a minute or two on the free movement protocol in particular, because this is a really innovative development to have a new protocol that has specific provisions addressing access for displacement, displaced people. Could you tell us a little bit more about the role that you see that playing in addressing this issue within the IGAD region and perhaps whether this offers lessons for other regions as well? Um, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Tamara. As I mentioned before, IGAD was established in 1986 as a response to drought and development because of the severe impacts of drought in the region. And uh, because of that, the agreement establishing AGAD actually enjoins member states to intervene, to prepare themselves to intervene in matters of drought, matters of uh, other natural, natural disasters such as locusts, famine, floods, to mention but a few. And then also at the same time, um, the IGAD agreement enjoins member states to establish a regime of free movement of persons. That is in Article 7 of the agreement and Act uh, 13. Therefore, the member states of IGAD have worked together since nine, uh, 2017 until now on the protocol, which was then adopted by the Council of Ministers in June uh, 2020, uh, 2021 this year. And Article 16 relates to the movement of persons affected by disasters. Now, this is a very unique article because free movement regimes normally just address the whole citizenry. But in this case, because of the unique nature of our region, the impacts of climate change, the, the natural impacts of desertification, we have had to have this article specifically speaking to persons affected by disasters. What does the article, uh, what provisions that the, does the article provide? It commits member states to allow their citizens in member states who are moving in anticipation during or in the aftermath of disasters that they may enter into their territory provided that upon arrival, they shall be registered in accordance with national law. What does this mean in practice? It means, first of all, there is a prevention capability that member states are committing themselves to. There is a response capability that they are committing themselves to. There is also the issue of rehabilitation and durable solutions, including building resilience of communities where we know they are prone to natural disasters as well as providing persons displaced by natural disasters with protection, social service access, to mention but a few. Above all, this provision of Article 16, subsection one, enjoins member states to provide identity. They must, uh, the persons affected by natural disasters must register themselves or must be registered by the host or receiving country and they must be provided with identification. Now, this is very important because then the persons can be supported with protection and social service delivery by the hosting member states. Now, um, the second provision in this um, Article 16 
enjoins member states to take measures to facilitate the extension of stay or exercise of other rights by citizens of other member states who are affected by disasters in accordance with the provision of the protocol when return to their state of origin is not possible or reasonable. This helps IGAD citizens to be able to find refuge in safe places for as long as they require it, for as long as their communities of origin cannot sustain their livelihoods. And it also helps persons displaced by disasters to secure their right to protection and access to basic services, education, health, agriculture services for food production, and also to do trading wherever they are. This article also calls for member states to actually execute stabilization programs of countries of origin where disasters took place. So the member states will then be able to look at the economy and the environment from which these persons are displaced and try to build resilient capacity in these communities so that they can return where it is safe. And staying longer in host countries is also an issue of um, enjoining member states to undertake better cooperation and collaboration in managing uh, disaster displacement. Again, we, we are backed as well by the OAU Refugee Convention 1969, where they refer to events disturbing public order, and they were able to invoke on this convention for the 2011-2012 Somali drought, Somalia drought, which really uh, killed and displaced millions. Uh, for them at that time, they were given refugee status. But in this instance of the protocol of EGAD, the persons displaced by disasters will be treated as such they don't necessarily have to get refugee status because refugee status is governed by another law as well, the Refugee Convention uh, managed by UNHCR. So this is a very uh, pragmatic uh, approach at the legislative level in the region to managing disaster displacement. I thank you. Lucy, thank you so much and some really wonderful developments there. And we really look forward to seeing how they proceed in the coming years. Walter, if I could turn to you, we've, Lucy's given us a great overview of some of the key international frameworks as well as regional frameworks uh, governing this issue. Um, and we've heard, of course, of the limited, though not obsolete, function of refugee law. What other tools or mechanisms can we be looking to to address the needs of those who move in the context of disasters and climate change? And what are some of the advantages and disadvantages of some of the different responses that are available? Uh, thank you, uh, Tamara. Already in your introduction, you provided an overview on the many, many tools uh, that exist. And I would like uh, to categorize them a little bit and to uh, focus on the strengths, but also the weaknesses of uh, these uh, different uh, approaches. Uh, first, we uh, should start out at the domestic levels with domestic laws, because if you're looking at the quantity of legal provisions, then um, a majority of these provisions can be found actually in, in, in domestic laws and not in international law. Why should states admit people displaced in the context of adverse effects of climate change and other uh, disasters and um, allow them to stay? What we see are two different motives. 
The first one are humanitarian reasons. And this is then translated into um, instruments such as humanitarian visa or temporary uh, protection uh, status. Uh, that's something uh, we find in many, many countries in Central and South America, also uh, TPS in the US and Canada and in some European states. The uh, strengths uh, here is, this is addressing the most vulnerable. The weakness is the provision of humanitarian visa or TPS, temporary protection status, usually depends on uh, discretionary power of uh, authorities. So we lack pred uh, predictability. Does it work? Are states generous? I think they are most generous. And again, that's the observation we make uh, where there is an element of reciprocity in the sense that neighboring states are experiencing all of them disaster. So the idea is, well, we are generous in admitting people from the region, from neighboring states, because our people might be displaced across borders. That's the geographical and the disaster situation very much uh, in Central uh, America. The second motive for countries uh, to uh, admit people are economic reasons with a humanitarian twist, I would say. Uh, and these are the prime examples are in your region. Uh, the um, temporary uh, labor migration seasonal workers programs for Pacific Islanders, uh, both in Australia and, and, and New Zealand. So the main drive is we need manpower, particularly in the agricultural sector. But we're using that instrument also to help those people from uh, islands affected by um, climate change helping them to build their own resilience by uh, through remittances, investing the money earned, etc. The problem here is, so the advantage is people have some liberty, some freedom to choose whether to migrate or not, they are not displaced. The uh, negative point, it's very limited numbers and uh, it's not for the most vulnerable. It's for those who are good workers, but not those who might be uh, most in need. Then moving on to bilateral or regional levels. So that's now international law, that's treaty law, and that's mainly free movement agreements. Free movement agreements have uh, traditionally been um, developed uh, again out of economic uh, motives to allocate manpower where there is work, where work is needed, etc. But we have seen uh, that free movement agreements have been used quite often by survivors, particularly of sudden onset disasters, but also in the context of slow onset movements. Uh, 10 years ago, Christchurch earthquake and um, movements out of the Christchurch uh, area to Australia on the basis of free movement uh, clearly increased. Same 2015, when uh, the earthquake hit the Kathmandu Valley, there are open borders to India, many left uh, because they did not want to depend on humanitarian assistance, but looked for work in the neighboring country. Regional 
Western Africa, the ECOWAS free movement uh, agreement, again, very often used by people, usually temporarily, uh, to make some money and send it back to uh, the family affected or the community affected by drought or by, by flooding. All these agreements do not specifically refer uh, to uh, disastrous uh, effects of climate change, but they are used. And I think that's really the innovation with DGAT agreement we just heard uh, uh, to make it uh, explicit. And it's interesting to see that uh, EGAT uh, already uh, has provided an example for another region. The Organization of East Caribbean States, they have a free movement agreement, which does not mention uh, disastrous effects of climate change. But um, right now they are developing model legislation to implement that agreement. And uh, the secretariat of the organization really wants to specifically address now people displaced by uh, disasters in the implementing legislation. And when they reached out to us, they mentioned as an example or as the example, the EGAT uh, agreement. So it will be very interesting to see whether this will further develop. And then of course we have refugee law, which I skip, but uh, human rights law. Uh, Bruce already uh, mentioned the Teitiota uh, decision where uh, the committee um, supported his decision in New Zealand. Teitiota was an asylum seeker from Kiribati who claimed that uh, his life uh, was at risk due to the effects of uh, climate uh, change. Uh, the committee uh, said, yes, there might be situations where sending someone back to a country affected by adverse effects of climate change might amount to a risk to life. And in that case, sending back such a person would amount to a violation of the right to life. In this specific case, they found in the foreseeable future, no such explicit risk. What does it mean? Bruce already said this decision is particularly important at the domestic level for domestic decision makers. And I think the biggest impact again will be in the context of sudden onset disasters where you clearly can show that sending back a person to a disaster affected area would create a risk for life or uh, create serious suffering amounting to a violation of the prohibition of inhuman treatment, particularly where there is no access uh, to uh, humanitarian uh, assistance. But all of this needs to be further developed. Now to conclude, if you look at all the existing tools, there are two underlying principles. One is opening up, creating migration pathways. That's all the free movement, the migration quota, or non-refoulement. And that's uh, the refugee, a law approach, that's a human rights uh, uh, law approach. And if you're looking at the Global Compact on Migration, Objectives 5 and 21, you'll find explicit, explicit language on that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Walter, for what well, was a really fantastic crash course in legal responses uh, to this issue. Bruce, I'd like to come back to you to look a little bit more at at this region that, that I'm joining from in, in the Pacific. Um, Walter already mentioned some of the initiatives here, but I wonder, given the work that you've been doing, 
uh, in the Pacific, whether you might like to expand on what countries like Australia and New Zealand are doing uh, to facilitate opportunities for migration from neighbouring countries, including some that are already uh, very severely impacted by climate change. Over to you. Yeah, look, thanks. A lot of this has been touched upon and covered by Walter. I think, um, you know, when we think about the role of migration policy, migration uh, uh, tools to meet um, um, you know, people moving in the in, because of climate change impacts. I think we need to sort of think about well, two questions really. I mean, to what extent are there existing policies that are specifically directed towards dealing with these people as, as a specific type of people on the move? Um, and there, um, the situation is there's no explicit upfront policies in, in that regard. In 2017, the new Labour government floated the idea about introducing, I think, a climate change visa, and it didn't go very far. Um, it certainly hasn't come into um, existence. I think part of that was the way it was couched. It was seems that it was that people were being seen as some uh, type of refugee, and that was something the Pacific people were not keen on. That's not to say there's no provision within regional uh, immigration law that makes some allowance for. Um, uh, the impacts of disasters. I mean, in Australia, for example, the policy advice me has got some explicit guidance around uh, decision makers or immigration officials being able to vary conditions because of the impact of a disaster um, is meaning the person can no longer fulfill a, a, a condition of the visa that they otherwise would have been able to fill. In New Zealand, it's a lot more ad hoc. If they're like Walter mentioned the Nepal earthquakes, at that point in time, Immigration New Zealand will do a reach out to all the Nepalese students and say, hey, we're aware this has happened. How is this impacting upon you? And invite um, them to get in touch with INZ to try and find some way of keeping them lawfully in the country. Quite frankly, I think the Australian model is the way to go. It gives predictability and certainty um, in that space and as a way of, of keeping people legal and lawful in a country and is something that I think regionally we, we, we can build upon. Um, but, you know, I've, thinking about immigration um, policy more generally, I've long been of the view that we already have at our fingertips many of the um, policy, policy mechanisms that we need to allow people to make voluntary choices to go or stay as they see fit and do it so in a way that's lawful. But again, we need to think about the whole range of movement here, you know, temporary migration right through to permanent uh, residency. Walter's touched upon labour mobility schemes. Yes, they are an important mechanism for generating remittances, which can contribute to uh, adaptation uh, at the household level. Sure, but they're generally not constructed around, around um, um, climate change or, or disaster impacts. I think one of the challenges is a way is a way they don't capture what I call the vulnerable. They, they, their selection criteria, the entry points, aren't really around people who are exposed to hazards. And I think there's a real opportunity to begin to think how where how these uh, policies are configured in a way which captures some criteria around which vulnerability and exposure to hazards uh, can be brought within them. And if you look at the climate science and certainly the last assessment report issued by Working Group One of the IPCC, it was pretty explicit. And, Saying, look, in, in some in the coming decades, we may be reaching habitability thresholds or some low-lying atoll states in the Pacific. We may reach the limits of adaptation. And even long before that, the impacts of, of, of the long-term impacts of slow onset hazards or the, the year-in, year-out uh, impacts of sudden onset hazards 
may mean that there is an impact on people's well-being where they have connections and ties with another country, which means they would, would like to voluntarily move to come. So I think we need to think very carefully about our migration policy settings, which provide pathways towards residents um, included in this as you know, transitioning from, um, long, uh, from work to residence. And I'm of the view that with a bit of thinking and, and thought, and much the way that EGAT has done with their free movement thing, they've really future-proofed their regional migration arrangements um, by reference to the here and now. And I think the same holds true with migration policy generally. Often these have a lengthy history reaching back to the 70s or the 80s even when climate and disasters wasn't so much front and center. And I think there's a real space within which we can begin to um, introduce into these um, migration policy tools sensitivity towards um, the impacts of disasters in, in, in climate related hazards. Um, in the Pacific context, you know, family is everything, and yet it's very difficult for um, the parents of Pacific workers to be able to enter the country to be united with their family. Um, and so things like that, I think, are things that we really need to revisit in the region in a way in which promotes voluntary choice to stay, uh, uh, to go, if that's what people want, want to do. And there's certainly lots to work with, uh, is my view. So I sort of question around uh, securitization that I think may have addressed to me. Look, that's a huge challenge. Um, I think, look, I, I don't know how much the securitization thing will play out in this space. I mean, it's obviously a huge uh, uh, issue, um, you know, barriers to entry, barriers to accessing these um, types of arrangements. My sense is that that will always be there to some extent, but it's a question of how much weighting it's, it's given. Um, and I think working within regional structures uh, such as personal life, we may find that um, the shared, uh, the, the what was talking about, the, the shared exposure to these hazards may mean that it's given less, less of a weight going forward in terms of being a barrier to development of more climate sensitive migration policy than perhaps would be the case when dealing with pure refugee flows. So lots to work with in the migration space, I think. We have the tools. Thanks so much, Bruce. I think we've had such a great overview now of the, the very many tools that are out there, um, as well as the sort of broad themes or the broad um, objectives, as Walter mentioned, you know, there are those that open up opportunities for people to voluntarily choose um, their own responses and, and to move if they wish, coupled with the need to ensure protection for those who really are at risk um, if returned. Our panelists so far have already been doing a really good job of, of responding to some of your questions. Just a reminder, if you'd like to pop your questions into the Q&A, um, we'll do our very best to get to at least some of them before we finish. Caroline, I'll turn to you now. You've done a been very patient in waiting, thank you. Um, so far, we've been talking predominantly about frameworks that facilitate cross-border movement. So, you know, international migration, refugee protection, non-reform under human rights law. But we've also heard that, in fact, the most, most of the people who move in the context of disasters and climate change will move within their own countries. How do laws and policies help to address the needs of those who move internally. Over to you. Yes, thanks so much. I, I think, you know, this is the interesting part about when we talk about kind of legal and political aspects and what's happening in international community discussions around 
climate refugees, right, moving beyond this, and the reality on the ground and what we see that most people are moving internally. Um, and that takes, like anything, many forms, whether that's internal displacement, people moving, um, fleeing uh, their homelands in the context of a disaster, or moving for better economic opportunities and in, in urban economic centers, for example. But most of this is happening uh, within countries, and that creates kind of a disconnect between these discussions sometimes and reality. But there are, as have been pointed out, any number of tools and um, laws and programs that are in place, both if we look at the uh, domestic level and um, into domestic legislation, and in the international community, and some which are not exclusive to international or internal. So, of course, we have the guidelines on internal displacement, which is a key um, international community piece that addresses uh, displacement in the context of disasters. You have regional instruments like the Kampala Convention in the African Union that also recognizes internal displacement um, caused by disasters alongside those by conflict, for example. You have the UNFCCC, UN Framework Convention for Climate Change. Um, the WIMXCOM that created in the Paris Agreement, the Task Force on Displacement, whose whole mission is to avert minimize and uh, address displacement. And that's not just international, that's internal. Uh, and part of that that's also emerging is the work from um, on technical guidelines uh, for countries coming out of the uh, expert group on non-economic losses. So looking not just at displacement internally, but also um, movement, human mobility, including migration. And that's probably where the biggest gap lies uh, in terms of the international tools is looking at what could be called more voluntary movement that's often you know equated with economic migration internally and therefore falling outside or these people slipping through the cracks of protection mechanisms because it's seen to be labor migration um, but this is kind of one of the big areas where we see people coming in very precarious conditions moving into um, for example coastal megacities and actually leaving risk like drought and arriving in floodplains because they're seeking uh, work and opportunities and then actually increasing the risk for displacement. And that's where we're having um, gaps in terms of not just migration policy, but urban planning, um, infrastructure. And these are major, I think, protection gaps uh, in terms of internal movement. Thanks so much, Caroline. You talked there about there being some people slipping through the gaps. And I think another group um, that is at risk of slipping through the gaps is actually the people who don't move um, when faced with risks associated with disasters and climate change. What This is an area that you work in. What, are you, what is your view? How should law and policymakers be dealing with questions of immobility? What are the kinds of needs or issues that face those who, who don't move? is again this is a major protection gap more than um in many ways because we kind of are so used to it's ingrained in our minds that vulnerability is marked by movement and this is something that we haven't seen a lot of recognition of that people who don't move may be even more vulnerable than those who um, move because of the effects of disasters or climate change especially when those people don't have the resources to to leave um, and i think in terms of how policy and law can address immobility, now, of course, we can talk about general climate change adaptation, disaster risk reduction, looking at Sendai um, 
goals or, or SDGs and how we can um, build resilience locally of affected communities. And I think what Bruce mentioned is really the most important starting point for these policies that look at immobility is how you can, yes, enable the choice to move if that's what people want, but also how can we enable the choice to stay, right? So minimizing people who are forced or trapped in context of disasters or climate change um, and minimizing their vulnerability, helping them to um, move if that's the, the ideal solution for them. And at the same time, enabling that choice to say, not only seeing trapped populations, but building laws and policies that allow people to adapt in situ um, and not be displaced or not be forced into relocation programs that they don't want to be a part of. And that's, of course, extremely complex and difficult to do. But again, if we take that human rights approach that it's about enabling choice and not deciding preemptively, hey, you should move because that's adaptation or you shouldn't move because that's vulnerability. Um, that's, I think, has to be the center of, of policies going forward. Thanks so much, Caroline. So my final question, I'm going to come back to you, uh, Walter. We've, I feel we've covered a lot of ground in the last um, 40 minutes. When this issue first sort of started to be put on the table, there were some calls for a new climate refugee treaty. And I think, you know, we can hear from our discussion why that might not be um, the best solution. And indeed, those suggestions have sort of gone fairly quiet in favour of the toolbox approach that we've been talking about today. I'm going to sort of pull together one of the questions from the audience with my own question to ask, in the time that you've been involved since you uh, were appointed as the envoy of the chairmanship of the Nansen Initiative on disaster-induced cross-border displacement in 2012 to now in 2021, what have been the big changes? And then what do you see going forward? What do you see the future direction? Uh, what will it be or what should it be in terms of law and policy responses to this issue? Thank you. Um, to answer your question, actually, you have to go back um, further than uh, 2012. You have to go back to 2010, when uh, in Cancun, in the Climate Change Adaptation Framework, um, the uh, Conference uh, of Parties to the uh, UNFCCC uh, Convention adopted a very short paragraph recognizing that among the challenges of adapting to climate change, uh, uh, are forced uh, displacement, voluntary migration, and planned relocation. At that time, first, it was difficult to get uh, those four lines, and second, states were not really ready to follow up on that. So the biggest change is that now it's um, an issue that is safely anchored on the uh, international uh, agenda. Uh, we have heard about that. Uh, in addition, I would like uh, to mention uh, the um, a task force on displacement um, set up um, under the Warsaw International Mechanism on loss and uh, damage. I also would, could mention uh, the um, new report by the high-level panel on internal uh, displacement, which um, rather extensively addresses uh, the issue. So in that sense, yeah, progress made. Second, what I see is when we started out the work, really silos, 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 people not talking to each other. The uh, disaster risk uh, reduction silo, the climate change 
uh, silo, the migration silo, the refugee uh, law silo, uh, policy uh, silo, and so on. Today, I see much more of co coherence. It's very much the same, or at least the similar messages coming out of all these different processes. Does this mean that states now are ready to make the leap towards a convention, an agreement? As you mentioned, uh, certainly not creating a new category of climate refugees in the sense of refugee uh, law for all the reasons uh, we heard. But some agreement um, on uh, people displaced by adverse effects of climate change across borders. Well, first we have to look at the overall international uh, situation. Um, Tuvalu tries since several years to put that on the agenda of the General Assembly with no uh, success. We had different academic proposals for conventions. None of them was really taken up. So there is still no uh, appetite for a uh, convention. Why that? Several reasons. First, we have a crisis of multilateralism. There is a general reluctance of state to conclude binding treaties. Even the Paris Agreement, which is binding, is very weak in terms of uh, obligations. You simply have to be, uh, come up with your own um, goals in terms of um, reducing um, emission of uh, greenhouse gases, but not much more than that. So even a binding treaty has very, very little um, normative content in that sense. But we see that in almost all areas of international law. Then we also have been addressing this to some extent. We still have limited knowledge about causalities, uh, about dynamics, and this makes the conceptualization very difficult. When can we attribute actual movement to uh, global warming, when to other uh, issues of multi-causality? And then also why not uh, include uh, those who are affected by disasters which are not related uh, to climate change, all of that. And finally, the political reluctance of some affected countries to kind of sign away their future by saying, yes, we uh, now uh, tell our people that everyone will be displaced. That's one of the arguments we hear in the Pacific, and I think it's a very valid argument. So all of that uh, is not in favor of a uh, universal agreement. Having said that, what I think we will have is more development at the regional levels. Regional organizations play a very important role. We heard about IGAD. I mentioned the Organization of East Caribbean States. We um, have the Kampala Convention on Internal Displacement, specifically covering climate change in Africa. I think all of that will continue. There are ongoing discussions on the regional uh, human mobility framework for the Pacific region. I think that's the way to go. That is um, the only realistic way. And we need to support those developments, also because dynamics are so different from one region to another. Also because it's easier to create consensus at the regional level. But as uh, Lucy said, this not only uh, requires political will, it also requires uh, support that should be provided uh, to these regional organizations. Back to you. 
Thank you very much, Walter. One of the most recent developments in this space and, and one that was mentioned in the first panel session um, earlier today was the very recent resolution by the UN Human Rights Council um, stating that the right to a healthy, safe and sustainable environment is a fundamental human right. Bruce, I might direct this question to you, if that's okay, from with the, your human rights hat on. Um, this morning, Andrew Harper was asked about, you know, what impact this recent decision by the Human Rights Council might have on protecting people who move. And his response was that perhaps nothing immediately, but let's look to the longer term and to the development of jurisprudence, particularly in refugee law, human rights law, and in potentially in the scope of non-reform on. I wonder if you have any reflections on this question as well and whether you see this being important going forward. Um, my reaction is, is one of, I guess, broad, broad agreement. I mean, it's a positive development. I mean, the right to a healthy environment has been on the table for 25, 30 years, one, one form or another. So to have a General Assembly resolution, uh, so a Human Rights Council resolution recognising that is um, very important. Um, it depends on how the domestic legal system is configured as to how much weight that is going to have or not have in terms of driving any decision. Certainly, um, from where I sit, it would be something that would form um, part of the legal discussion around any, any case, but it wouldn't necessarily drive an outcome one way, one way or the other. I think it's far too early to tell what normative effect it may have and how that may filter down into, into jurisprudence. It's certainly not going to have any sort of direct impact as far as I can see it. Um, over the long term, who knows? You know, states may um, um, react to that in, in, in certain ways and with their own domestic spheres, and that then could create certain ways in which that could then filter into the domestic legal process. Um, most RSD or, or protection is revolved on hard law and for the reasons why we, we don't have hard law saying there is this right to a, a treaty, uh, a treaty saying there's this right to a healthy and sustainable um, environment. It's not embedded in any hard human right treaty in, in that sense. We have sort of um, but we have some recognition of it in some international treaties, but it's nothing direct as this. And so I think in that way, it's not going to have much great direct effect, certainly not in the short term. I have to sort of agree with that, I think. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Bruce. Um, and thank you to all of our panellists. We're at time, but thank you, Bruce, Walter, Caroline and Lucy um, for that incredibly comprehensive discussion and analysis of the legal frameworks that we have presently and the role that they can play in addressing this issue. And there's a very strong message here that we have tools. We just need to make sure that we implement them. Um, and then we can look at what else we might need. Thank you also to all of you in the audience for joining us and being part of this discussion. Um, to those of you who've posted questions um, in the Q&A function, we're really uh, grateful for those and glad to have you with us. The next conference panel for the Caldor Centre Conference will be on climate litigation. That's running tomorrow morning, Australia time. And that will be followed by a breakout session, um, particularly for early career researchers uh, working on topics relating to displacement, 
uh, migration, disasters and climate change. And I'm looking forward to joining that breakout session with my colleague, Claire Higgins. Registration remains open for the conference. So um, please keep telling your friends, your colleagues and invite them to join uh, if they would like to. And we very much hope to see you at another Caldor 21 session very soon. Thanks so much.